0: I'd like to play a little game with you. It's called Name This Famous Football Coach. Uh, So put it up here for us, Andrew. Anyone know who this is here? Yes, it is. It is Vince Lombardi. And um, I know to a lot of you, especially girls, you don't know who Vince Lombardi is. I'm sorry. Um, Vince Lombardi is famous for a lot of quotes, Well there's one quote in particular that Vince Lombardi is known for, and it is this, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. My question is, do you agree or disagree with that? And and I'd like to set a couple scenarios that will help you discern whether or not you in fact believe that winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, or not, okay? So scenario number one, when playing a board game with family or friends, do you A, try to win at all costs? You're not afraid of stealing from small children. You don't mind grabbing a draw four off the bottom of uh, the Uno stack, okay? Or others of you, you just really want everyone to have a good time. So by applause, how many A's are here? How many A's are here? Hold on. Carson, are you serious? Dude, you're definitely an A. Are you kidding me? Come on. How, how many Bs? How many, how many just want to have a good time? I don't feel like you owned it as much, all right? How about the second scenario? Here we go. Check this out. When someone challenges you to a race, this could be in the water, in a car, on a tricycle, do you A, first assess your chances of winning before committing, you kind of size up the competition, right? Uh, that, they, they look pretty strong. I think I've got a cramp, right? Or or do you see it as great bonding time? Oh, this will be fun. Let's race and hug it out in the end, all right? So in this, how many A's are here? How many A's? Because you're figuring out a way out of that race if you think you're done, Right? How many people just, you see it as good relational time? Let's race, let's have a good. All right, last scenario, check this out. When you lose, every once in a while, okay? Do you A, pout, whine, and blame? Some of you, when you lose, you don't talk for like 48 hours, okay? Or do you see it as an opportunity to grow? So how many of you guys are the A, pout, whine, blame? I'm surprised some of you are even applauding because you're still chapped from some losing earlier, right? Uh, B, how many of you guys just, you see losing as a chance to grow? Well, um, I want to make sure we're all on the same page or something. We, uh, we play a lot of games in our house. And last night, we're playing kickball in the dark. Uh, it's it's lame that it's getting dark now at 5 o'clock, right? So I'm figuring out ways I can, like, spotlight my backyard because I just love playing with my kids. And so we're out back, and, you know, like, I mean, our, our yard isn't very big, but when I come up to kick, and it's like me versus my kids, like, I am not going soft. If... If I'm kicking, I'm kicking to win, you know? So I'm like booting it like six houses over, you know? And I'm like, Dad, see, we went through like four kickballs. It was awesome, okay? Um, now, now, listen. If Vince Lombardi was studying Joshua, which I don't know if uh, Vince Lombardi was a studier of the Bible. I don't, I don't know if he was a believer. I'm not sure. I didn't ask him, and he'd be gone, okay? But, but if, if he was, if he was, he would be very, very interested in the nation of Israel right now because, uh, especially in recent days, they're doing a whole lot of winning. Uh, God has provided for them. They've crossed a Jordan River. They uh, have seen uh, Jericho hashtag winning go completely down. I mean, they're they're winning a lot. They're winning a lot. The question is: as we continue this journey, will they always win? And if they, at some point, face defeat, how will they respond? And so tonight I invite you, listen, in what will turn out to be an epic uh, hinge point chapter in the study of Joshua, I invite you to open your Bibles, return into your devices to Joshua chapter 7. And if your Bible's like mine, you can tell by the subtitle that we're getting ourselves ready to now come out of ancient Jericho and this war of victory into a new era. So let's look here in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith, very interesting term, in regard to the devoted things. Uh, for, for Can, the, the son of Carmim, a son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned hot or burned against the people of Israel. Where, Well, Achan or Achan here, depending on how you say it, all of a sudden we have a new scenario that's introduced uh, to the nation of Israel. And so I want to remind you why this is even a scenario. Here's what we saw from the commands of God last week. But you, when you go into Jericho keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction less when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it so god makes clear if you go into jericho and take things he's saying all those things are devoted to destruction or mine and so if anyone does a little fevery if anyone wants a little you know war bounty then that's not going to go over well. In fact, what God says, it's going to bring trouble. And so now, next slide, what we see happening in verse one is the people of Israel, the scripture says, broke faith. The reason why I've highlighted in yellow is because I really resonate. As for me and my house, I've broken faith. Anyone else? Like, as for me and my house, I've proven to the Lord that I am completely capable of lacking faith. I've broke faith. And in this case, too, someone or some things have done the same. But I really want to draw your attention to three underlying phrases from verse 1. Look at this. People of Israel, can or Achan, and against the people of Israel. Look at those three things. What do you notice? We're talking about Achan. And Achan's done something. But look at how the passage opens. But the people of Israel broke faith. And then we start talking about Achan's sin. And then, in, and then in the end, the Lord burned against who? The people of Israel. So then we're left to only make one possible deduction. Next slide. Let's say it this way, and I hope you see this. Our sin always affects the rest of the body of Christ, always. And you're like, well, Mark, how can that be? Let me just show you how my sin would affect you. If all day today I've just been hangry, okay, yelling at everybody, judging people left and right, yelling at my wife, taking out my anger on my kids, and then somehow I, I can stand up and proclaim the word of God to you, if you don't think for a second that that doesn't impact you and affect you, wake up. Because then, like, I'm completely preaching or communicating out of my gifts, not through the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm trying to, uh, trying to uh, gather you to rally around me or something. Like, there could be all kinds of pride and divisiveness in me. My sin impacts you. Or how about this? Like, you guys go to the grocery store. You see, uh, you know, a person down the cereal aisle, which is one of the best aisles in the grocery store, Right? I mean, when you come to that Lucky Charms box, this is like the heavens have opened, you know? Like, pour all those marshmallows on my face, right? Anyway, so listen, as you come down that cereal aisle, normal everyday circumstance, walking down your hallway at school, you name it, and all of a sudden, you come up to a person. Well, if your day had been filled with selfishness, if your day had been filled with, I got to go from here to there, I'm not interested in anyone else, then you have every potential just to pass that person by. But think about the opportunity that you would have if all of a sudden you were thinking and considering everyone else. Now all of a sudden you strike up a conversation. Now all of a sudden you find out that this is a believer in the serial aisle, that they're struggling. All of a sudden they find out you're a believer and they ask you to pray for them. Do you guys see the scenario? Times that by every scenario, every minute of your life. Your sin and my sin impacts everyone else in the body of Christ. And in this case, Achan affects the entire rest of the nation of Israel. It's it's crazy for our minds to even wrap around that truth, but it's 100% true. Well, the problem is how we deal with that. Next slide. I think many of you believe that this can happen. Isolating yourself does not take away the effect. So what many of you have done is you've been like, well, yeah, I've got a lot of sin, so... I don't wanna bring that into the body. I don't wanna defile the body. And so I'm not gonna confess that. I'm gonna deal with that on my own. I'm gonna go to my cave. I'm gonna have a church in my house by myself sort of mentality, which only furthers the American consumeristic consumption mentality. That you somehow are so important that you could isolate yourself from the body of Christ and in so doing, Believing the father of lies and affecting the body of Christ more. Do you understand? This has been some of your parents. You've watched them. Oh, we believe in you know, we believe in the Lord. Well, well then why aren't we connected in community? You know, why aren't we in like the, the local body of Christ and, and walking together and journeying with each other? This is why I shared with you a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again now. What, what we believe here in Matthias, and the reason why we planted this church was to not fill nice, you know, black seats that bend back and put on worship gatherings. We long with one another in relationships to encourage your obedience as you encourage mine. Why? Because we affect each other. We're a part of the body of Christ. You guys know when you slam your finger in a door, which that almost makes me vomitous just thinking about it, right? Like, like when, you, when you slam your finger in a door, you know it's not just your finger that hurts. I mean in that moment you got like blood coming out of your ears, you know, you can't even think you got a migraine all of a sudden came up, you got an ingrown toenail that arose, which that's a whole other topic. Anyway, right? Like, like just, just the little the little pain in one finger affects everything, so it is with the body of Christ. The I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So we're getting a very, very clear picture here of the necessity of community. And I'm gonna keep saying it to you and keep encouraging it with you, Matthias. Listen, we are here to be a local expression of the body of Christ and to lock arms together. One of the reasons why we've set up this way is so that you can look across the room and be reminded that we're together in this. And I know maybe some of you have been distracted at times, like, oh my goodness, that person's sleeping. Like, I can't, you know, Mark's looking right at him. This is gonna get awkward. Like, like I, I, I know the potential is for this to be distracting, but... Man, I love hearing the voices sing together and more importantly, I love the ability to look across the room and be reminded that you are not the body yourself, that we are all the body of Christ. And so I know it's heavy to even begin with this, but this is, what happen- this is what's happened now, okay? Uh, Achan has, has stolen, has taken something and now everyone in the nation of Israel is going to be impacted by it. So let's look at verse two. So Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. Now, um, you guys remember the first spies that Joshua sent to Jericho and they met with Rahab and, and they were worthless spies. You guys remember that? They got found out by the king in a couple hours. We don't have biblical indication that they're the same spies, okay? I don't think they got recruited again, right? So this is probably a different spy. But what Joshua says is, all right, we've, we've conquered Jericho, now what? And standing right in their path, 12 miles north of Jerusalem, up in topography, they got to climb, is this 12,000-person city AI. Cue the map. I want to show you where it is. Circled there just uh, to uh, to the south of Bethel in that red box. Now, we so far have no indication that God has told them to do it. I'm not saying that God hasn't told them to do it, but the scripture doesn't say. We have no indication that Joshua has fasted and prayed over this decision, but what he does as a leader of the nation of Israel is Look at AI and say, all right, it's time to go. And so here's the response of the spies. And verse 3, they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack AI. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So the spies come back, little puffety chests, a little uh, overconfident maybe. They just saw a two-walled, fortified city in Jericho go down. They come back. They see a much smaller city, much fewer people. And they tell Joshua, look, 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 dude. It's all good. We send two or 3,000 up in there. It's ours, no problem. But is it no problem? I think this brings up an amazing opportunity for us to learn. Next slide. I want to say it this way consistent victory often lulls the victor to sleep what i mean by this is i played on some bad teams and some good teams when i was a junior in high school i played on a very bad high school basketball team okay we won like four games all season not good but in like the 15th game of the season we played number one state ranked shelbyville you guys know where shelbyville illinois is anyone okay it's a great city name no matter what. Name your girl that, Shelbyville. It'll be really cool, okay? Shelby, you can shorten it. You see what I'm saying? Now, Shelbyville, number one in the state. They had like two dudes, 6'8". They had a guy go to Illinois and play. Our tallest guy was like my mom at 5'5". Five, five. I mean, we, we weren't tall overshadowed by them. They did the starting lineups like the old Bulls did, like spotlights and playing the Bulls songs. It was crazy. Like the crowd's going nuts, and we're like, you know, we're little, little Vandalia Vandals. But guess what? They took us for granted. And we came in, and I was a three-point shooter. We were hitting threes. We were going crazy, and the whole Shelbyville Stadium was like unbelievably, like, we're going down. Now, we lost by one, okay? I wish I could say, like, I hit a last-second three. Actually was the one that took the last shot, and I missed. So I, I do apologize. I do apologize. But what I'm saying is the victor, when they start to take their victory for granted, there's like a, a lulling effect. Now, on the opposite side, I played on some good teams. My senior season, football, played on, played on some great teams. Okay, and I'll, I'll be honest, like there were teams that started to play us and like they had put up no points. They were horrific. And there were a couple games where we took them for granted. We're like watching film, like laughing at them. They were like wearing tutus on the football field. We're like, these guys aren't, you know, these guys aren't even football players. But they played us tough. Why? Because we took them for granted. I think this is the exact same scenario. They shouldn't be overconfident because they didn't fight Jericho, God did. Their confidence should be in the Lord. But they come back, they're like, Joshua, dude, no, no worries, man. No worries. Two or three thousand. We'll go in, we'll figure it out, it'll be all good. So I want to say it this way in a help to this. A lack of trial, then often lulls the follower of Christ to sleep. Paying your bills, your school debt seems minimal, all your relationships are intact and in order, you have some good food on the table, there's no, uh, no one sick, no one in the hospital, and that is what I found the demise of much of American Christianity. When things seem to be okay, then there is this lulling effect. We start taking it for granted as believers. We stop thanking the Lord. And we live under this like somber reality that everything is just all good and it's okay all the time. So I want to show you why some reasons are, some effects of this. Next slide. A lack of trial often mulls the follower of Christ asleep. Why? Number one, a lack of trial can provide the illusion that there is no need of God. Why do I need the Lord? Are you kidding me? Like my grades are decent. I got great friends. Like everything is sort of aligning themselves. Yeah, I needed the Lord last year when mom got cancer, but like it's all good. God healed her. Now I can just do my thing. That's the reality of where many of you are living under some false pretense that God took care of business and now you can just do your thing. Hey, thanks, God, for what you did back there. Now it's for me and my house. I got it. Like, we're good. God, maybe we'll reconvene at another juncture. But as for now, we're, we're set. Number two, I want to point out this truth. A lack of trial can provide a false sense of favor you start to think that because your relationships are good and you have a J-O-B and that girl is actually taking interest and your professors seem to be on your side, we think that that means God is being favorable with us. But let me ask you something. As Stephen was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, do you guys believe that God wasn't being favorable to Stephen? Would Stephen in that moment have said, God, you're not being favorable to me? No, he owned his suffering. Why? Because he cherished the opportunity to die and be martyred like his king. But you know what the the prosperity gospel teaches? Is that your circumstances show whether or not God has favor on you. But if that's true, then ask 10 of the 11 disciples who were killed because of their faith. Was God less favorable because they died? Heck no. How things are going in our life is not an indicator of the favor of God per se. But in these times, victory, no trial. Oh, God's favorable of me all is well. Lastly, I hope this one hits home. A lack of trial can lower the perception of the need to obey God. Now, can any of you remember, did did your grandma have a cookie jar? That's what I'm talking about. No more homes have cookie jars, and it's a darn shame, okay? My grandma had a a cookie jar, and obviously, you would put and infiltrate that jar with said cookies, right? And, uh, And so, she would always have rules and regulations for the cookie jar. I had a lot of cousins my age. All right, boys, two cookies today from the cookie jar. Well, When Grandma didn't want us to get in the cookie jar, she would put it high. You know, she'd like put it on a cupboard or on top of the fridge. Like that's going to keep us out of it, right? I mean, come on, I stack a few chairs, you know, Grandma's around the corner out on the farm. Grandma comes back in, hey, like where is all the cookies gone, boy? I don't know, you know, straight disappear, right? Osmosis or something, I don't know, right? (laughs) Now, now, it's a completely, listen, it's a completely different story if grandma comes around the corner and I'm on on top of four chairs teeter-tottering around and she sees my hand in the cookie jar. Hey, hey, Mark, uh, what are you doing? Oh, hey, grandma, I'm just dusting off the top of the cookie jar here. Noticed that it was a little dusty. I thought I would get it for you. I have no reason to stop going in the cookie jar, I, I tell myself, unless she catches me. We live under the audacious nature that we only need to obey God when it will in some way in negotiating power earn us something or until God catches us. And the way we perceive that is someone else has caught us. Can I make us all understand something? You've done been caught. Like every sin... You have ever, ever lived in, expressed. He's already seen. but Like we have the density to think that God doesn't see. He comes around the corner. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. I didn't know you were over there. And then, listen, then we bargain with him. All right, God, listen, I'll obey you. No problem. If you'll agree to these terms. You hook me up here to provide these things then I will obey. Well, listen, when you're lulled to sleep, when you're in periods where there's no trial, where your bills are being paid and all, all things seem well, then you convince yourself, I don't need to obey God. Everything's great. And when I start disobeying, then he'll come down on me. Do you guys understand how ridiculous this is? And so I want, I want you to see, for the nation of Israel right now, what's going on, okay? They've gotten a little overconfident. The victory has, I think, lulled them to sleep a little bit. And that's going to be a massive problem. Verse 4. This is hilarious to me. So about 3,000 men, which, pause. You guys remember how many, how many men did the spies say to take? What? How many? Two to 3,000. Don't you love how Joshua rounds up, right? He's like, hey, let's send three, okay? Let's send three. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And up there is literal. The topography is higher. And they fled before the men of Ai. Whoa, 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 what's going on? And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Whoa, 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 whoa. 3,000 men go up to a 12,000 population AI, hardly fortified. And the nation of Israel that just conquered Jericho is running in retreat. And 36 of them killed and now I want to show you what's happened in the great irony of this passage. Next slide, I want to show you this. Check this out. In Joshua 2, we saw this. Rahab, the prostitute with a name, says this in verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, she's telling the spies, our hearts what? She's talking about Jericho. Rahab and the Jerichoans. okay? And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab says, because of what God did in you, our hearts melted. She wasn't the only one. Next slide, look at Joshua 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts, what? Come on. Melted and there was no longer any spirit in them. This is all the Canaanites. Now, in tremendous irony, look at verse 4 and 5 again. How does verse 5 end? And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Asherbaam and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Israelites, what what in the world? You guys walked across the Jordan River. You just watched a double-walled, fortified city fall when you shouted. And now, in the face of 36 people dying, you're retreating and your hearts are melting. Do you guys see this? What in the world is the problem? Let's say it this way. Next slide. Why? Why is one defeat or sin? so powerful even after a series of victories and the promise of ultimate victory. I'm asking you. Think about your life right now. Win, 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 and then all of a sudden one defeat, one setback, one tragic sin. It's like it can outweigh all of the other victories. The question is why is that? The the Israelites have been celebrating tons of progress. And now all of a sudden they're throwing in the towel, their their hearts are melting, they've like lost all faith. Why is that? Next slide, I'd like to propose to you how this is why. Yes, I, I do know that the slide is a spiral staircase. Seems like an odd transition. But I put it up here for a reason. Next slide, let's say it this way. The reason why one defeat can impact and affect us like that is because we are quick to spiral. Listen, I told you already, because we're in the same body together, the body of Christ, I really care about your obedience and I hope you care about mine. And so what I long to share right now Is something that the Lord's put on my heart. And I I want you to come with me on this journey. And I know that for some of you, this is going to be some of the heaviest stuff you've seen or heard in a long time. But I pray some of the most freeing. Next slide, let's develop this a little bit more. When you come to an opportunity of sin, and I don't want to take for granted that all of us are on the same page with what sin is. Some of you guys grew up and, you know, don't sin, you know, shame, 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 you're a naughty boy sort of thing. And you didn't have a concept of what sin is. So first, sin plainly is disobedience of God. Is God saying, here are all of these gifts that I also call commands. And when you look at these gifts and you say, no thanks. When you look at make disciples and you say, no thanks, I've got another plan. When we look at the calling to forgive, and we are like, no thanks, I don't need to forgive. When we look at love, all love others, be gracious, and on, like when we look at these commands, and we tell God, no thanks, I have a better way of doing things, that is sin. Now, when we sin, there are a couple options. Here they are, next slide. There's either a quick repentance. We disobey God we realize that we have done so. Oh my goodness, I, I got so angry, so frustrated, grew bitterness in my heart, but all of a sudden the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes in. You're like, whoa, 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 the, the scripture frees me of that. The scripture says that because I've been forgiven, I can forgive. And so instead of anything else, you stop in the tracks of unforgiveness, you rest in Christ, You repent and turn from your sin and you forgive. The other option is a spiral. One sin leads to one more. Um, Ask David. Some of you guys know King David in the Bible was a pretty prominent character. Yes, he did slay Goliath. But did you also know that he lusted after a woman that was not his wife? Did you also know that that lust then turned into an actual affair? And did you know then that that affair and his desire to cover up his sin then turned into murder? Did you know that? The spiral. David was called in scripture and is called a man after God's own heart and yet he experienced the spiral. Your porn addiction didn't start with a porn addiction. It started with a thought that there was something more that could fulfill you. And so your curiosity then started to spiral. Uh, those of you who are struggling with eating, dis- eating disorders, your eating disorder, you're causing yourself to throw up or your constant body image uh, issue or, or struggle, it didn't start by looking in the mirror. It started with some insecurity that started to well up because ultimately Christ wasn't enough. The spiral is strong, isn't it? It is strong. And I wanna show you how strong it is. Next slide, look at this. What starts to happen is initially, initially we have conviction from the Holy Spirit. For those of us that are believers, if you're not a believer, sin doesn't affect you. And what I mean it doesn't affect you is like, there's no like, oh my goodness, this is wrong. And so if you're not a believer here, like I just want to make sure you understand something. You will never hear me or anyone else in this body call the non-believer to morality. We'll never say, you need to shine up. No. What happens in the gospel is you come to Christ and then he cleans you up. Are we together? Okay. But what what happens is, is for those of us that are believers, is the Holy Spirit in us, you, you can just walk. When you're walking with the Lord, you just walk in a dark place. Listen, I, I mean, I, in college, I, uh, most outspoken Christian on my campus, many of you guys know my story, it was a part of a massive revival, and every once in a while, I would, I would go to frat parties and different things that my football teammates were a part of. I wasn't indulging in the things that they were, but I would be lying to say, like, I could just, like, walk up in there and feel the darkness, like, it. It's crazy, like it's crazy the sense that you have. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in you and the scripture says in him, there is no darkness at all, right? And that in him is now in me and in you, it's abiding in us. And so when that light and darkness like hit, it's like, like they, can't, they don't even coexist. But for some of you, conviction is long gone. It started out with strong conviction, but now the spiral has gotten so powerful, starting out with some guilt. The conviction was starting to wane, but but now you start to feel guilty. And so then your obedience was birthed out of guilt instead of a love for the Lord, right? Well, I better do this. Or uh, like I always say, the shoulds. I hate the shoulds. We get to follow Christ, not we should. Are we together? Then that guilt starts to lead all of a sudden to shame, and then that shame compiles to condemnation And then the bottom of the spiral, which is where some of you, if not a lot of you, are at, is unforgiveness. I can't be forgiven. Too far gone. The spiral is too dictating of everything that I am. You want to know why one defeat can all of a sudden go against a lifetime of victories, including promised victory? God has told the Israelites, I'm going to give you this land here. They have promised victory, and you know why one defeat can lead to all this. Because the spiral. Because all of a sudden, one defeat, and we're throwing our hands up in the, in the air, like, "Oh God! Like, what are you doing? Like, are you sure, God? Is this is this really what you have for us?" I want just the weightiness, the truth of this, to sit on you for a second. As we consider, next slide, this. This is what I've been asking. I hate the spiral. Anyone else? I hate it. I see it in myself. I hate it. It never provides life or joy. My question is, can it be stopped? Does one sin of mine always have to lead to another? Or can the whole the whole what seems to be natural peace, can it just be, can it be halted? Can repentance really be ours right away? Let's encounter and discover that together as we watch the Israelites spiral. Look at this in verse six. Then Joshua, as the hearts of the people melt, tore his clothes, hope they weren't pumas, and fell to the earth on his face, before the what? What's the word there? Come on. The ark of the Lord until the evening he and, and the elders of Israel. News gets to Joshua. And here's, here's the way I'm picturing this. He sees like the, 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 the soldiers running back to camp. Or he watches some of them limping because they were hurt. And he sees what he wasn't expecting. He's like, He didn't have binoculars, but, you know, I I still picture him doing the binocular thing, right? Like puts his hand, like, what? Are they? Are they coming back? Like, we sent him to, to take the land. And he sees, like, a couple of them bloodied. And he hears the news, 36 have been killed. And as an ancient way of lamenting, he tears his clothes. The elders put dust on their heads. This is a complete saddened laments by these leaders. What in the world, God? And so here's what happens. Look at this in verse seven. And Joshua said, uh, seemingly after the night of lamenting, alas, O Lord God, which I think is pretty funny language when you're lamenting, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Why did you bring us here? Just to destroy us. Now, what what initially seemed like a subtle spiral in the tearing of clothes, now can you see the spiral getting a little bit heavy? I mean, guys, this is Joshua. This is like the leader of the nation of Israel. He's old man river. I mean, the boy's like 90 years old-ish. We've seen strong faith in the man. And now he's crying out, why did you bring us out here? What, to kill us? It echoes that of Exodus 16. Look at this. Many, many years before. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots, which I hope that gets some of you dudes excited, meat pots, it's like Texas Roadhouse, just everywhere, okay? When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out of this wilderness, look, look what they're saying, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So now years later, Joshua is saying precisely the same thing to God. If I were to sum up what Joshua said and what Exodus 16 says, here's the way I would phrase it. Why did you save us if we were going to have to trust you? Come on. Now let's put you in the seat. Let's put me there. God, why did you save me if I was going to have to endure this trial? God, why did you save me from the pit of my own destruction and sin if I was then going to be put on the the very precipice of life and death and trust you fully? Why would you do that? Do you guys understand now how ridiculous we sound? Hold on a second. Like the Lord looks at the nation of Israel in Exodus 16 I brought you out of slavery. Don't you trust me that I'm going to provide? And guess what he does? Water from rocks, manna from heaven. He's told Joshua, I am going to give you this land, it is yours. I've saved you so that you will trust me. And yet we balk, we balk in the face of having to trust in the Lord. Listen, can I just, let's just shoot it super, super straight right now. We want a relationship with God as long as we can define the relationship. And you're used to DTRs, okay? You guys have had one or three of those, right? So are we a thing? Are we not a thing? Like, are we just talking? or Are we dating now? I don't even know what, you know, what you guys all call the process, all right? When I, when I was dating Heidi, it was like, you know, we had no texting, all right? So we, like, had to talk with our, with our voices, okay, right? And so I, on the second date, I told her I was going to marry her. That's how we wrote, all Right? Right? We want a relationship with God as long as we can define the relationship. I just want to make sure you understand the problem of that. That's not God's terms. That's not how the Lord works. So let's make sure you understand what it means to worship the Lord. It means you get to have relationship with the king of the universe. You don't dictate what relationship means to him. He's showing you what relationship really is in him. And yet we're like, God, why why would you save me just to make me trust you? And God's like, that's precisely why. I am the author and perfecter of faith. So don't be surprised at your trials. Why? Because they are gold mines of opportunity to trust in the Lord and not in the works of our hands. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. So the great paradox as Joshua's discussion with God continues. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? Talking about the retreat, verse nine, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? You see what he's saying? He's saying like, what's gonna happen? If everyone else in Canaan hears that we got beat up, they're going to rally against us. This is like poor, poor military strategy. God, what's going to happen to the glory of your name? Like this nation over here is going to hear, oh man, those Israelites, they were retreating. And all of a sudden, they're going to band together and come against us. And Joshua has the audacity to say, what's going to happen with your great name? Are you kidding me? I need to step back and confess If I somehow think that I hold in my hand the great name of the Lord, now I can speak it and I can blaspheme it and you can mock it and your friends can point their middle finger at the name of the Lord all day long. But I want to make sure all of us understand one simple truth. It doesn't matter what you say or what you do, the name of the Lord is the name of the Lord, not because of you and I, but because of Him. Just because your friends don't don't believe doesn't mean He's not real. Just because your life has proven over and over and over that He is not worth worshiping for some of you, it doesn't mean that He's not worthy. And so Joshua's like pleading with the Lord, what's going to happen with your great name if these enemies come against us? And though I know he's not, I picture the Lord just like with his arms open. and They're big old arms. With his, with his arms open like, seriously? Is this really how little you would make my name, Joshua? Joshua is spiraling. This dude is doubting the promises of God when he was just leading the nation through a riverbed that had been stopped up. It can happen so quick. It's so dangerous. You guys ready for um, the Lord to say something? I sure am. Check this out. Verse 10. And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> You know, like, you, you would imagine the Lord, like, hey, there, there, Joshua. <laughs> get up. I, like, I don't, I don't imagine the voice was like, oh, Joshua, are you come here, little buddy. You know, like, you can, st- get up. And again, like, he's an old man, so to get up, it's going to take a minute. Okay. It's going to take a minute. But God says, get up. Look at this. Look at what God continues to say. Why? have you fallen on your face? Hello, somebody. Why has defeat got you down? Why did this one setback like change everything in your life? How did one repetitive sin become so controlling? I picture the Lord saying to some of you tonight, get up. Not by pulling up your own bootstraps, but by resting in the strength of Christ. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Why, why so defeated? I hate losing. I hate losing. But there have been some times in my life, and one in particular I want to tell you about, where the defeat was so strong. Uh, Heidi and I in our relationship, being disobedient in some others, Some other things, I was a senior in high school. I had invited a kid to come watch me play basketball, a kid I was mentoring. And I went and picked him up and I got lost and then was lost to the game. And I took him home after the game. And true story, I'm out in the country by myself. And all of a sudden this thick fog comes over my car. True story. I'm like, where did this fog come from? I literally have to stop my car because I can't even see. And I'm on a bridge. And at this point, like the Titanic theme song is playing in the background. Something. It's just a weird moment. And I was so entrenched from all of the day's occurrences with defeat. And it seemed so unbelievably powerful. I didn't know what to do. And I I can't make this story up. Finally, in defeat, in surrender... I just got on my face on this bridge hoping no cars were coming. And I did what all I knew to do and that was to cry out to the Lord. And I'm serious, I'm serious. I say amen and about 30 seconds later, the fog lifts. And I drive home and I go, as the story continues, listen to this, I go to the gym late at night. Like my four best buddies are still there like an hour after the game. It's like everything, the, the feet seemed so powerful. But God yet again was reminding me, whoa, listen, listen. You have to understand what's already been won. Okay? So God looks at Joshua and says, get up, old man. Why have you fallen on your face? And now look what God already sees and knows. Look at this. Verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. The question is, how does God know this? And the statement is, God is communicating the spiral. They've stolen and lied. How does God know this? Did someone send up a messenger? Hey Lord, uh, you, you know, you know, we got a, you know, we got a thief in here, right? And imagine, right? imagine again, like he's, he's going in, it's chaos, listen, it's chaos in Jericho, okay? People are all around, people are dying and he comes into a house, no one's around, no one's looking, he sees a little something, something there on the table, a little gold, he has his knapsack with him, again, chaos is all around. He's thinking and believing that no one's seeing this scoops some of that stuff right there in his bag. One man out of 1.5 to 2.5 million throws his knapsack on his shoulder and strolls back to camp as if nothing happened. Did someone send word to the Lord as a messenger? No, God saw every devious act in that moment in that room. And so now the Lord doesn't just go against one man. Look what he says. Who has sinned? Israel. Israel has sinned. I know, I know that you think because you are alone, because you're all by yourself, because no one's looking, because no one sees, I know that you've convinced yourself like I've convinced myself That there's no possible way this can impact and affect anybody else. Listen, if I'm going down, I'm just taking myself down. That is a lie, my friends. Your secret sin, in that secret moment, in that room of yours, as you throw the things in the knapsack, God sees and it impacts the rest of the body of Christ. Now, it's not hopeless. We have tremendous hope because he's given us one another if you're willing to go, if you're willing to enjoy the body of Christ, if you're willing to say, you know what? Relationships scare me. Having to confess my sin, I can't even imagine that. But I'm realizing that my sin impacts the body of Christ. and So I want to lock arms then with them so that we can encourage one another in obedience. Again, why do you think we're here? Listen, we're not throwing a Jesus rally where we all can just applause and then head out the doors. Not interested. What we're doing here is equipping the body of Christ to be the body of Christ so that we can embrace what God has called us to be. I hope you care about my obedience. Listen, can can I just bring you into my heart? Do you think I do this for my health? Do you think I I preach just because I want to hear myself talk? Heck no! My voice is going. I hate the sound of my voice. Listen, you know why I do this? Because I care about the body of Christ following Christ. I care. I long for you just like I long for me to lay down our idols at the foot of the cross and say, Christ, I want you and nothing else. I long for that. I'm not doing this for me or for applause or for people to come up and say nice sermon. I want us to obey God. My question is, do you want that out of me? If we do, then that requires relational commitment. It begs of us to journey together. Because if this is true for us, Then I'll tell you what right now, the non-committal culture that I see very, very clearly must embrace the opportunity to commit to what they've already committed to, and that's the body of Christ. You're trying to convince yourself that you don't need to be committed when when you came to Christ, that was part of the deal. I mean, I see in this culture, lastly on this point, I see in this culture... A constant sense of, I don't really want to commit to nothing. Because when I commit to something, then I'm going to have to be held accountable. And I'm not interested. And in so doing, hurting the body of Christ. It's crazy to me that this is a reality. But it's our exact and precise reality. So look around you. It's not a Jesus rally. This is the local body of Christ called to come together to be equipped to obey the Lord so that St. Charles and your campuses and your workplaces get infiltrated with the gospel. So that you come here and you're like, oh my goodness, God is real. And you walk down that dorm room hallway. And you head into that workplace and you love people with a reckless abandonment. And all of a sudden the gospel is pouring out of your mouth because you know it's real. This isn't just some dog and pony show where we're coming together and applauding the things of the Lord. No, we are signing up to die and going out into this world and doing so. And again, the beauty is we get to do it together. If not, your sin, just like mine will, it will affect us all. Wake up from the slumber. So verse 12, as if verse 11 wasn't heavy enough. Therefore, God says, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. This isn't good news. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. Look at what God says. I will be with you no more unless... You destroy the devoted things from among you. Hello. I mean, God straight looks at Joshua, get up. I know all the sin, and I'm going to be with you no more unless you destroy these things. So in light of all this, next slide, here's what we're back to. Can the spiral be stopped? Let me say it to you this way: Was it possible for David to begin to lust after the woman and for his sin to be stopped and repented of? Was it possible? Did it have to get to adultery? Did it have to get to murder? Let me, let me say it this way: Could that porn addiction could it have been thwarted? With the insecurity that you were trying to find worth or help or solace in something else. Could it have been stopped there? Could it still? Some of you in relationally sexually charged uh, pursuing uh, with a a man or a woman and, and the whole thing is just is fueled by lust. Is it possible that it didn't have to get to a sexually charged relationship that it could have been stopped? Can the spiral be stopped? The enemy, who's the father of lies, doesn't want you to think so. Next slide. Here's what he wants you to think. You're stuck. You'll forever be on the spiral. It's over. Good luck. Have fun. One sin will always lead to another. And then guess what? You know what the ultimate sin is? Covering it all up. You'll sin, it'll lead to another sin, and then you'll cover it up so that no one really knows how you, how you battle. That's what David did. That's what all of us at some points have done. The father of lies wants you to believe that that's your reality. There's only one path. There's only one way. Sin leading to more sin and a constant spiral of death. I think there is another way. Can I share it with you? Is that cool? You don't have a choice. Next slide. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I want to say it to you this way. Next slide. Rally around this thought. To battle defeat, we need a person, not a process, and that person is Christ. Culture is trying to spoon-feed you with process, Self help crap. Indulge in this. Go through this six step thing. Every one of our defeats is a Jesus answer. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 15 says we have victory in Christ Jesus. We don't need a process, we need a person. And He Himself bore our sins. And He Himself went to the tree. And through He Himself, our wounds have been healed. So listen, can I share because of that the great hope? Next slide. No matter where you're at in this spiral, no matter how far down, some of you feel like you're out, caught in the trap. No matter how far down, no matter how deep it's gotten, the kindness of God through the person of Christ have said no. The spiral stopped in my son. You see, he became our unless. Remember when God said, unless you destroy these things, I'm not with you? You know what Christ did? He stepped into that for us. He became our unless. He took on sin even though he knew no sin himself. Perfect Passover lamb goes to the tree so that you by identifying with Christ can have life in spite of right now feeling defeated. Defeat does not have to win one more day. And the spiral of sin that some of you are so trapped in can right now be laid Down again at the power of what Christ has done. That, that is the beauty of the body of Christ saying, Here, God, you've saved us, and now we long to trust you. Let's stand together. Come on. God, bring hope. God, bring hope to the hopeless right now. Bring forgiveness to those who feel unforgivable. God, take off the the noose of slavery that so many feel. God, will you give us courage right now to lay down these things? that we think have now become a part of our identity. Will you show us, God, that we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation? God, right now in this precise moment, will you reaffirm our sonship? Remind us of who we are in you. God, will you help us trust that you are God? God. Give us courage.